Hello, you're listening to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast, presented by Brandon Elliott. This show will be going over all aspects of real estate investing and is intended to educate, motivate, and prepare you to take action on your first or next real estate investment. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome back, everyone, to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Mr. Brandon Elliott. I'm excited for today. We have somebody that's been in the game for the last several years. Got started in 2017, started originally as a sales manager, got fed up with really working for somebody else, wanted to desperately you know, become that business owner, get that financial freedom, started working as a wholesaler, turned into fix and flips, buy and holds, to this date has eight, you know, bought eight mobile home parks, has 184 doors generating about a you know 1.4 million in rental income along with fix and flips per year and doing about seven to ten you know flips throughout the year. So a lot of experience, you know, actually hosting your own RIA group within the Atlanta metro area. And really focusing on more creative type of real estate, you know, wrap subject to acquisitions. And I think this is really going to be impactful for so many people that are trying to just get started or, you know, in when interest rates are high, it's really important to pivot towards those more creative type of plays. Because let's face it, in the last seven, 10 years, everybody and their grandmother basically refinanced, right? About 70, 80% of America refinanced when the rates were so damn low. So there's a lot of opportunity out there to capitalize on a creative opportunity and get lower you know, still great deals for motivated buyers, but actually jump in and take advantage of those lower rates versus where they are today. So with all that being said, Carson, what is happening, my man? How are you today? We're doing great, Brandon. Thanks for having me on your show. I really appreciate the opportunity. And, and it's always fun to tell your story, how you got where we are, and also to share the experience because as so many investors are out there, you know, there's not a lot of classes you can take that don't cost an arm and a leg. And I found getting into the business, not knowing really much anything about it other than the fact that I wanted to do it, that I relied on a lot of people around me that were a lot smarter than me to learn what I know today. I've never paid anybody for a course. I've never paid to buy a class, like a CD thing. I've never done any of that. I've just surrounded myself with people really that were just smarter than me and learning from them and actually paid them through my deals. So give them a piece of the deal so I could learn how to to process the deal in itself, whether it was a wholesale deal or a fix and flip or what have you. So everybody kind of got what they need and I got the education. So it's worked out really well. Yeah. And I love that approach, that hands, you know, holding on a real live, active, physical deal. Instead of buying some course, you can get real active and have a mentor kind of guide you. And, you know, heck, if you get 50% of something, it's better than 100% of nothing. So getting that hands-on experience after you do two, three, four of them, it really, you know, every deal is a little different, but you can start understanding and kind of shake out the jitters and start rocking and rolling on your own. So I love that. I'm a huge advocate of that. I mean, I I, yeah. I I could have gone out and bought stuff, but I've seen so many people buy, I'm not going to mention any names of the companies that buy these 30, 40, 50, 60,000 dollar classes, which have great content, mind you, great content, but you're, you're drinking from a fire hose. And if you don't process that information the right way, you get, you get kind of shoved to the side and a few that make it do really, really well. But if you don't learn that way, like I don't, 
I learned by doing. I learned by, I'm not a reader, I'm not a voracious reader, but I learned by doing. And I found that if I could get in with the passion that I have, find people that were ethical, honest, and were willing to help and pay them through the deal, it was a win-win for everybody. And it's really built my foundation and taken me now where I wanted to go from a wholesaler into a full-on investor. So talk to me about the beginning, because this is exactly like you said it, you know, everybody learns differently and somebody that wants to invest in themselves to get all the information, right? It's a lot. It's like drinking from a fire hose and there's levels to this. So a beginner might not like really benefit from drinking from the fire hose and getting that $50,000. Like there's tremendous value in it and maybe one day they could, but there's levels to everything. So maybe starting them off with something more simplified and something like, hey, let's one step at a time. How did you find your original mentors or people within your circle to kind of help you? Because they they still need to pour in time to you to tell you what to do, to search for those deals and then bring me a deal type of thing and then you know work with you on it, right? Exactly. Great question, Brandon. The premise behind it was I didn't have one single mentor. I had some people that I knew that were in the industry, and I kind of went to a lot of these local meetups or local RIAs where it didn't cost any money because I didn't have any. And yeah. I just learned. I wanted to be able to speak Russian. So I went to Russian meetings, right? I wanted to speak real estate. So I went to real estate meetings, and I was the guy asking all the stupid questions. What does that mean? What is ARV? What is all this stuff? Because I didn't read about it. I just went and learned. And I learned the language and I asked the questions and I engaged others. I saw other people doing what I was doing, but kind of sitting back and just, hey, I'm here to learn. And they didn't really create a presence. As a salesperson, I can carry a room. I can keep people engaged. So I'm a talker. I was able to do that. The telling, so I talk with my hands a lot. So I got involved with people, exactly. I got involved with people and asked the questions. So I didn't have one specific mentor, Brandon. I, I, I had several people that I kind of relied on that were friends of mine that would help me understand a certain aspect of a, let's say, a wholesale deal, right? There's several components to that. One, what is it going to sell for? What's the ARV? I didn't have access to the MLS. So I'm looking at Zillow, which as we know, is probably not what I should have been doing, but that's what I did. And it gave me a ballpark and I knew it wasn't the way to go. But then I had some friends that were agents and I'd pound, you know, hey, can you give me some information on this this property? So I have an idea of what it would go for. And then I had a construction background when I was in college, not extensive, but enough to be dangerous. And so I'd go through these properties with a buddy of mine. I said, okay, I'm going to tell you what I think the rehab is. And I'd walk through and come out like seven grand. And he turned to me and go, no, it's like 30. I was like, whoa, how, what am I missing here? And so I learned by making those mistakes, but not to the point of putting it out there to where other people saw my mistakes. I kept it internal. And so since he kind of guided me when I did wholesale that deal, which by the way, was a subject to deal, my first deal was a subject to deal. I gave him a kickback. I gave him some money on the deal because he helped me get there. I wouldn't have been able to do that without it, but it came from the proceeds of my profit from the deal. So I recognized that I'm making an investment in myself and I kept him involved. And then as I needed less and less of him, he just became more of a colleague. I love that. So talk to me. I believe like a bunch has changed probably since when you originally started in 2017, your experience, you know, getting mentors and kind of going along the process in comparison to where you're at today. So what what was the model back then that you were going after and what is kind of the bread and butter today? Back then it was a lot more wholesaling today. You're trying to hold a lot more and do more creative financing, although it sounds like your very first one, it was a creative deal as well. It was. 
And I, I could have grasped that concept pretty well. I had to have my hand held, but I, I got through it. But to answer your question, Brandon, I had a, a, a plan. I had a short-term plan, like a one-year plan. I had a three-year plan, and I had a five-year plan. And I constantly adjusted those as I went. My goal was ultimately to be an investor. I knew wholesalers traditionally were kind of the, the bottom rung of the ladder. Nothing wrong with wholesaling. I do it today. But in terms of how they're viewed within the real estate market, at least here in Atlanta, anybody can get involved with it. And because anybody can, everybody does. And it's just like a, a full-time job almost. You know, it's like it's something, it's still active. It's not that passive or tax benefits. Correct. It makes a lot of money if you do it, right? And there's some guys I know that do it incredibly well. They're making six figures a month doing it. And it's it's a full time job, but they're they're just they're putting money away. Is what they're doing. But in any event, most wholesalers, the ones that were involved with this in the beginning, really don't have an idea of what investing's about. So they don't know how to structure the deal in terms of acquisition and you know, to buy the contract and what it's worth. So there's just a lot of erroneous information, a lot of bad opportunities, as I call them. They're not deals because the deal makes sense. And a lot of these opportunities were just not good. And so I wanted to make sure going in, I was purposeful that not only did I have integrity in my word, integrity in my honor, but also integrity in my numbers. I wanted to make sure that if, I, if an investor who was seasoned came out to one of my properties and I said the ARV was 400000 it was within that range. Granted, there's some room for interpretation. It could be 385, 415, whatever, but it wasn't 250. And so the 400,000 ARV thing, okay, that makes sense. And then when I tell them that the rehab is $50,000, it's not 95 or it's not 30. And they say, okay, well, these numbers make sense. So I didn't waste their time. That was credibility. I wanted to earn that because I was going to springboard into buying and holding and fixing and flipping. And I knew I was going to need capital or I wanted to put my name out there and have a credible name and integrity behind my name and my company name. So it was very purposeful in that direction. And I would yeah, I love that. Into it to think that way. Yeah. So Carson, talk to me more about that first project. Like break down the numbers. What did that look like? And do you still own that property or, or yeah, have you I, sold I, it? I still sell that property. Okay. Uh, so I went to Aria. I've been going there, started going in January. And it turns out somebody in my Sunday school class at church was moving. They had to move immediately and they were looking for a place to go. And my wife and his wife were talking and my wife's like, isn't this what you're looking for? And I was like, yeah, this is exactly what I'm looking for. I'm like, oh my gosh, here we go. And they wanted to walk away from the house and they were upside down. This was back in 17, I guess. And we basically took the house over and I took over their mortgage, but I didn't know any more than that. And I was like, oh my gosh, turn panic mode. Let me shift this off and we'll sell it to somebody else. And I made like 10 or 12 grand on it. And the investor that bought it, who I still know, they still own it as a rental. And yeah. they weren't behind on the mortgage at all. They were just upside down on the house. And they needed a lot of work. And they just couldn't fix it to sell it. So he just said, here's the mortgage. You pay it. I'm walking away. We took it over. And I put a markup on it that was reasonable, left some meat on the bones so they could still make money and I could make my wholesale fee and we we just shifted gears. And that, doing that first deal, as scary as it was, I was yeah. like, I can do this. I, I can I can make this work. I just need to know more. So I kept going to different real estate meetings. I was going to three and four a week, some during the day, some in the evening, and just networking and networking and networking. And hey, my name is Carson Olinger. My Capital City Equity Group is the name of my company. I'm a wholesaler and an investor. I never said I was just a wholesale. I'm an investor too, because I always wanted them to know that I would be an investor. And I am an investor in the true sense of the word. So love it. 
purposeful in my direction and in my goals. And I knew that, that over time, I would mature enough in my real estate journey to go from wholesaling to fix and flipping into now and buy and holding, which we are today. Love it. So talk to me, when it comes down to just in a few years, you're up to 184 doors right now. Talk to me about that. You know, I know you said you have about eight mobile home parks. I assume that's in multiple different states. You know, what what does that look like? Well, what's interesting about it is I, I did the wholesaling for about a year, year and a half. Then I had a wholesale deal go sideways. I was going to lose the contract, and that got me into my first fix and flip when someone wanted to do the deal with me. And so once we did that, I started fixing and flipping and wholesaling. Now, it wasn't until probably 2019 that I bought a duplex. And so I had two doors for a while that I bought a house. So I had three doors for a long time, and that was about it. And it wasn't until about two years ago that we really started getting into the multifamily experience. And that's when we started buying mobile parks because the sweet spot was there. As interest rates rose, the deals were harder to find that were good. So we looked at buying and holding to create the cash flow, which is what we want long term. We still fix and flip. So yeah, I think it's seven or eight mobile home parks now. We've got some primarily here in Georgia and the Atlanta metro area. Got some just over the border to the west of us in Alabama. And we're, we've got two more down in South Georgia as well. So we're trying to stay in the Southeast. And the first deals we got were like seven units, very small mobile home parks, which by the way, we're, we're getting ready to sell and divest out of those because we're going to use that to buy some bigger ones. But now we're finding, since we've kind of cut our teeth, understanding the operations and all the intricacies of ownership, that's better for us to own larger volume of 30, 40, 50 unit mobile home parks and apartment complexes. So we're looking at those as well. I love it. And so that first one, you said it's about seven mobile home parks there, and you're going to 1031 exchange that and kind of upgrade? We're probably going to cash that out and use some of it to, and you know what? We may do a 1031. There's also a trust that we use. There's a high level trust, kind of a concept of a self-directed IRA and a 1031 exchange uses some of the same tax advantages without tying it up. So we're probably going to put it into a trust as opposed to a straight 1031. It's a little more flexible. It doesn't have the time constraints on it. Yeah, cool. I like that. And so, you know, what are some of the other sizes of the mobile home parks that you have? So we've got two seven-unit parks. We've got a 27-unit park, 25-unit mobile home park, and then... We've got two more that are about 43, 42, something like that. Then we got the duplex. So I think it's about 100. Actually, I'm looking at the numbers now. It's 180 doors on it is what it is. So they're kind of broken down. We're finding that the units that are, that the, the properties that are 25 and up are a little easier to manage, especially now that we're a little more adept at what we're doing because we brought on software program and we got a couple of employees now to kind of manage the, the day-to-day operations. So I'm not answering the phone at two o'clock in the morning. We've got a, a portal that the clients or the tenants can go through to pay their rent, to put forth any uh, issues with the you know, maintenance requests and those types of things. So it's a little more automated, makes it a little easier. I love that. Yeah. So the best part about growth is that you can start to afford to pay for systems, for team members, for employees and start delegating a little bit. Right. And, and you know, sometimes at first when it's just two units or seven units, it's like, well, I'm barely making enough to, you know, I still, I'm getting high pay job, but I got to take all the calls. I got to do all the things. Yep. So talk to me, where was that breaking point for you when you realized like, all right, 
we got enough now. I don't want to do all this. You know, let's start putting team members in place. Was it right around that 25 doors or what did that look like for you? It was a little beyond that, but I'll, I'll preface that conversation by saying this. When we were doing the fix and flips, I was being told by a lot of people, because I hire a contract, I, I find the deal, I hire a contractor, he does all the work, and I go and find another deal. So we might yep. do two or three at a time. I had some friends of mine that do, you know, they fix and flip, and they were there swinging hammers. And I'm like, why are you guys doing this? And they're like, well, you can save like 20%. Like, yeah, but while you're stuck in that house, hammering stuff and knocking their walls and all that kind of thing. You're missing out on all these deals you can be taking there. And I'm doing five flips and I'm making, you know, less than 20 per, I'm 20% less than what you're making on the one. But our five deals, I'm making a lot more money and I'm I could focus on growing my business. And some people just don't see that. So yep. I, I kept back from it and I said, I'm gonna do the same thing with the rental properties. So when we assess a property, we use some um pretty conservative math. So whatever my gross rent is, let's call it $1,000. I take 26% right off the top. Okay. 10% goes to management because eventually we're going to need to have these professionally managed, even though we self-manage for a long time. We also have 10% for deferred maintenance, an air conditioner, or a roof's going to go up. We put that aside. And then additionally, we have 6% of vacancy. Someone moves out, takes a couple of weeks to re-rent it. You lose your rental income for those two, three weeks, whatever it is. So we put all those things in place. So now I'm at $740. So now in order for that deal to be profitable, I need to have a carry cost or a mortgage or whatever it is that I've got in it less than $740. Because between $740 and let's say $500 on the mortgage, that $240 is my profit. I don't yeah. consider that 26. A lot of people don't look at it that way. So with that being said, I say that because we took 10% out. Even though we self-managed, we would pay ourselves the 10% through another LLC as a management company so that we could use that as a as a expense for the, the mobile home parks or whatever. So we structured it. Talk to your accountant about that. I'm not mechanic if I can stretch it. Right? Yeah. But it worked well. So now when we hired people, we can keep them under that 10% because we still do some of the work ourselves. And I think effectively we're around 6%. But now we're starting to get so big. I don't want to have 30 employees. That's not what I want. I want to just have cash flow, passive cash flow. So I'm probably going to keep one or two of them that are in place now, hire a management company to kind of do the rest and have a hybrid concept. 10% that we had factored in at acquisition is now coming into play. And to your point, Brandon, it started to happen around that 30 units where you just start to get a little overwhelming. And I said all that to say this, if you have to ask, do I need an employee? You probably need an employee. Yeah. When you get to that point, you're like, it, it, it's tough because you're at that balance where, man, I'm, I'm self-managing these. I'm really making good money. I'm not paying somebody else. This is I'm keeping the money myself. But it's, it's, it's holding down. It's like a wet blanket. It's nice when it's warm. When that blanket cools off, it's just weighing you down and it's inhibited. So if you have to ask, do I need an employee? Is it time for an employee? If you're having those questions, you probably need one. And so a good metric, financial metric that I've read about that actually works is about four to $500,000 in gross revenue. If you're making four to 500000 in gross revenue, you probably need to have an employee because Paying that employee because you got taxes, all the other stuff you can deal with, operating expenses, and all the other things. So whatever your net is might be different than mine. But when you look at businesses on the corporate world, they're 
each employee represents about four to five hundred thousand dollars worth of gross revenue. Whether it's IBM, whether it's the guy down the street in the barbershop, that's usually about where they're at. Yeah, I like that. Talk to me about KPIs. Uh, you know, what are you tracking? What kind of systems do you have in place for a CRM? So I don't have a CRM anymore because we're not doing as much volume as we used to when we were wholesaling. When I first started wholesaling, I had a CRM program because I had to. And I was using, uh, I think, Lead Propeller and their project out of out of Texas. And I've since switched over to Carrot for my site. We were doing SEO or PPC on that, but we didn't have huge volume. The KPI we followed were a couple of metrics. One was how many leads are we getting in for the dollars we're spending, right? So what's our cost per lead? And we were really kicking it hard. I mean, we were getting 30 leads a month. You know, these are quality leads too, I do. We were running about $300 a lead. Then the other KPI I looked at was how many of those leads converted into contracts? And because the leads were so strong, if I'm not mistaken, and I haven't really tracked this in a while, but if I'm not mistaken, we had about 58 to 60% track record of lead to contract. And then once we we're in the contract, how many of those contracts closed? And I think we were at 42% of our contracts actually closed because you'd lose some for different reasons. So those are the three primary metrics that we followed. Uh, as the, the, the market shifted and more players, the iBuyers got involved in our market. We started popping down the list because we just couldn't afford to keep up. You know, the the Knox and the, the Zillows and all those guys came into Atlanta and I was spending three to four, maybe five grand a month. And these guys were dropping $40,000. And I was like number two or number three in my market. And there were only eight players. When these guys came in, there were like 30 players, and I wound up being number eight. And the difference between number eight and number three was literally about $35,000 difference. And I just couldn't afford to keep up. And that was just a pure wholesaling you know, machine going on. That's not what I wanted. I wanted the passive cash flow. So that's about the time we shifted into buying and holding because the market changed. And just like investing in stocks, Brandon, we got mutual funds, you got T-bills, you got I-bonds, you got different strategies, right? Large cap, small cap, it's no different in real estate. You got wholesaling, you get fix and flip, you got buy and hold. When one's doing well, you utilize that. When one's not, you shift to the other, but you got to be able to do all of those. So we found that works well. We still do all three. And then as far as all the offers, were you submitting offers on everything? I, I'm a visual guy. I like to see it. So I physically went out and I ran through the houses. I met the client. I wanted to touch them five times, either verbally or in a handshake. If I could touch them five times, we could usually nail the deal down. And we were finding properties that were significantly distressed. So these people were motivated, and that's what we targeted. We targeted motivation. I didn't target someone just needing to move and their company's moving because their primary reason is if they want money. What, what can I get? Their first question to me is, how much are you going to give me for the house? I'm probably not going to get that out because they're motivated by the money, not the financial burden that the house represents. So we focused on those types of deals, distressed properties, foreclosure, pre-foreclosure, those types of things. So we were getting 30, 25 to 30 leads per month. Like I said, I like to touch them all. And then we would send out, I had a form that I filled out. It was you know pretty much a template. And I just put in their address. I put in their uh, the offer. And we sent that off as an offer letter. And then when we got the offer letter back, we would then, because that was another touch, because now they're committed, we then send the contract over. 
think trying to get him under contract that way. And I'd, you know, what was interesting is that old time, Brandon, I think I closed, we did about 125 deals in like two and a half years. And I don't think, I, maybe one one deal, I don't think I put earnest money in any one of them. Nice. It was just- I love it. I, I mean, I literally put zero on the contract where said earnest money. That's how motivated these people were. And not to take advantage of them, that's not what I'm saying. We helped them out. We helped them get to the next step of their life. And you know, the house itself at that time was a burden for them. As I said, the market shifted now, as you know, Interest rates are up. There's not as much movement down in the lower areas. So the deals aren't there unless you want to do six, seven, eight, or a thousand dollar homes here in the Atlanta area. For earnest money, isn't I don't know, maybe in, in your state it's different, but I think in, in at least California, we need to put like some kind of dollar amount down to have it like legally binding. But well, so I've I've number. done like a, a dollar down in, in the past. There is, there, that is correct. So really what that means is if I give a dollar for earnest money, then they can't back out. Yeah. If I don't give any money, they can back out and the contract's null and void. So I was sure. of losing that. It doesn't mean the contract's null and void. It just means it's not really as snug as it would be if I put earnest money in. And that was yeah, yeah. Risk that and That's good. Because we were strong. We, we had a strong close and we moved quickly. We had capital to do it. We were using either hard money, private money, whatever we needed, transactional funding. We're closing deals. We're wholesaling. Uh, a lot of the, what we did was, was through assignment. I had people buying houses for me because of my credibility. Literally, yeah. on, you know, sight unseen. Hey, what do you say it's worth? I say it's worth this. All right, I'll take it. Zero days due diligence. Boom, done. No wiring over there. Just money to my my uh, my attorney. Good old days. I like that. <laughs> yeah, that's only been doing this what six and a half years. So yeah, yeah. But now the leads are just not there like they used to. Yeah, it switched up a little bit in the last couple in the last year or so, year and a half. So yeah. So for the new guy, it's a little tougher to get into that, right? So how does the new guy get into this? It's not the the culture, the market is not as I guess free flowing and as easy as it was. There's not a lot of volume there. Well, well, let's talk about that because you know some people may be saying like, oh my god, the interest rates are this high, and you know it doesn't make sense. I can't get in. I can't afford it. I don't know your feeling about it, and I'd love to hear it. But me personally, I think it's the best time in the world to buy. If you can buy right now, get your foot in the door. There's creative ways to do it, and I'm sure we could talk about that in a moment. But if you can get your foot in the door now, I believe that the interest rates will go down. They've already announced, you know, next year they're anticipating. It will drop about six times throughout the year. So God knows if that will happen or not. But sometime uh, we're assuming it will go lower. And when it does, it's going to open up the floodgates of everybody that's been on the sidelines that couldn't afford it or waiting for the interest rates to go down because of a mindset issue. When it does go down, what is that going to do? Everybody's going to be a frenzy on you know bidding up all these prices for the simple fact that there's only so much inventory. So what's that, you know, all these prices are going to get jacked up. So if you can get in now, it's only going to get better. If you can afford it with the interest rates currently, you can refinance later because you own it. And when the rates are down and your value will be up like crazy. So the best time, and if the rates keep going up, then guess what? You bought in at a great time. So, you know. There's a term I use all that that says, marry the property, date the rate. Yeah. Because you can always refinance, but if you got it to a property, it's cash flowing. It's only going to get better. Now it's got a cash flow. If you're going to buy it and hold it, it's got a cash flow. Don't look at it as a break-even equation. That hey, if I raise rent in a year, I can make more money. 
Don't ever do that. You're going to get in trouble. Make sure it can still make money when you buy it. But there are deals out there, Brandon. I, I totally agree with you. And it's, it's, there's always a good time to buy. There's never a bad time to buy. If you have that mentality, you'll then find ways to do that as you will yep. limit it creatively, right? So we've got a, a deal we're trying to take care of right now. If I go out and get a commercial loan, it's going to cost me 8%. It's going to eat me up. And this is like a $1.6 million deal. But we were able to go in and take over their existing mortgage, which is at three a quarter, okay, if it was subject to acquisition. We also did some creative owner financing to supplement the balance. So we're not even going to use a bank. And we're getting five and a quarter with that. So we're ahead of the game. And we've got 10 years left on that bank. There's just plenty of time to refinance and build equity in order to then refinance later, even if rates never go. So we're in a great position to do that. So you got to get creative and think outside the box. One thing I'll mention, I don't think I told you yet, Brandon, but every single property that I've done, I've done, I'm like 280 something transactions. That includes the 180 doors and all the wholesale deals and fictions left since 2017. But I've never used any of my own money. Not not pay with earnest money or anything. I use other people's money. They make good money. It's all transactional to me. You know, people say, oh, you can use your own money. You'd save 10, 15%. It's just a transaction. I look at it as just the cost of doing business. And that's right. Using somebody else's, that they can be happy with that and they're in a secure position. That's the credibility that I brought to the table. And I now open myself up to a lot more people that want to make money passively. So we decide, yes, you can just go borrow money if you have the credibility. But if you start now building that credibility up when the time's right, you can go and ask for that money. It's all about your network. Yeah. That's good. And and when I was first getting started, you know, I didn't know how to build that credibility. I, I was just diving into all the education. I didn't know where else to go, really. So I leveraged a lot of credit. We ended up figuring out how to get hundreds of thousands of dollars at 0% interest in credit cards, liquidate it into cash, buy real estate, complete the renovations with the credit cards, and then refinance doing the birth strategy later. And so, you know, when there's a will, there's a way. That That's what I've always been a firm believer of. But talk to us for a second when it comes down to wraps and sub two. For anybody out there that doesn't know, do you mind just giving like a, a 10,000 foot view, a little bit understanding? I know it can get very nitty gritty and, and might go over some people's heads, but it is creative type of real estate that can be really beneficial, especially when the rates are higher and, yeah. and really set you up for tremendous success. Well, this is actually something I teach. Uh, when I do my RIA, I speak on it. I'm actually a guest speaker. Some other RIAs around the local area to where they bring me in. I talk about subject to acquisitions, creative strategy, and mobile home park acquisitions. So for those that are new to this, subject to is, in all simple terms, assuming a mortgage. Okay. Now, there's not a lot of mortgages that are on paper today that have been written since the mid-80s that actually are assignable, meaning the bank gave a loan to me and I can now assign my loan over to Joe. Not a lot of banks will allow that. It's just it's not something that they want to do. Why? Because they loaned me the money. I was the guy they ran the credit on, not Joe. So is it illegal? Absolutely not. It's not illegal. They just don't like it. And nine times out of 10, they don't even know about it. Actually, 99 times out of 100, they don't know about it. So what that means is you've got somebody in a property. That person might be upside down. You probably heard the term forbearance. 
a lot of banks, like I think I did some research on this back in June. I think Wells Fargo, Brandon, alone has 685,000 mortgages that are in forbearance. And what that means is these people are not making their mortgage payment. That payment, that note, that loan that the bank makes money on is not making money. But for the bank to then say to their investors, hey, we're not making money on these 685,000, that's a huge write-off. They don't want to make that look good, look bad on the stockholding sheet. So they kicked that kid down the road and they said, you know what, Joe, you're $30,000 behind. We'll create a second loan on the back end of this. So when you go to sell it, we'll just start calculating it again from here. So they're kicking that can down the road, but it's getting too big. And at some point, they're going to have to say, you know what, we're going to foreclose them. So when those times happen and these guys are upside down, some of them might be five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 behind currently, you then can go in and say, hey, I'll take over your mortgage, which by the way, is at 3%, 2.5%. I'll pay your mortgage because your credit's already trash. And I'll catch you up you got to move. The mortgage stays in your day. You're not going to go buy another house for at least another five years because you're getting foreclosed on and your credit's trash. So they're probably moving into a rental property or getting a loan and this on their name is not going to make a difference. You pay the loan because why would they think you wouldn't? Well, because you're probably putting 20, 30, 50, $100,000 into the house. You paid the closing cost and maybe you gave them $5,000 to walk away. You got skin of the game. They see that. And you can structure it and you ask for the 10,000 foot view. There's ways to structure it where you protect them as well, which we do. So that if I got hit by a truck and I couldn't pay the loan, they get their house back and everything's free and clear for them. But the point is, subject to is basically buy the house where you own it, you own the deed, but the mortgage stays with the previous owner. We bought a truck. Totally 100% legal, but you got to structure it well. Most attorneys won't do this because they don't understand it. But there yeah. are a lot of journeys that will. It is not illegal at all. So the question that everybody asks, well, what happens if the bank finds out? Well, if the bank finds out, the worst they can do is call the note due. And all that means is you got to go refinance it. And they got to give you at least 30 to 60 days to do that. But typically they don't. Why? Why don't they do that? Because they've got a non-performing asset, the mortgage. It's not being paid. And now it is. Are they looking at that? No, they're looking at the other six hundred forty-nine thousand dollars this was what the money coming in each month, you know, that that's going to keep them at calm and, and being in good spirit. You got it. It's all you know, I, I, I love creative real estate in so many ways. There, there's so many amazing things you can do with real estate. I got a quick story that um, I actually I was in contract kind of talking about the dollar down approach in escrow. And yep. we opened up escrow. I put a dollar down and I put that down so that they couldn't pull out. But I also put in the contract a pain point for both them and me. And how I structured it was, hey, if I'm going to start pulling permits and so forth, but if I back out of the contract and don't perform, then I, I'm going to pay you $10,000. And wow. then they, and they were like, wow, that's awesome. And then I was like, and vice versa, if you don't perform, you will pay the same thing. And they're like, oh, OK. <laughs> and then, you know, and and it was because they wanted time. 
Sure. And time time kills all deals. So it's important to have backup plans and and make sure you're putting restrictions in. And surprise, surprise, three months down the road when we were supposed to close, they asked for an extension again. And I said, that's fine. We'll just bump up because time, it, you know, I don't want to kill deals. I'm not going to keep extending. So we bumped it up three times. Three times getting extended. It took almost nine months or almost a year. And yeah. Three extensions to the contract went from ten grand to twenty-five to fifty grand, and then we were we were about to extend for one more, and then they came into some money and realized that they actually didn't want to move; they didn't want to sell. So instead, they canceled the contract, but paid me out fifty thousand. Wow! And it was one of those crazy situations that I literally had a dollar down, and I got fifty thousand dollar check from creative financing of putting, you know, having your legal documents in place. I've never heard of anything like that. That is really, really unique. That's actually really smart. You think about it. We had a flip that we tried to sell back in June. We missed the summer window and got it on the market in August and the entire market shifted. I mean, if you go nine months, I mean, think about what happened from August until what now, right? Nine months ago. That's a huge difference. I mean, three percent is seven and eight percent mortgages in nine months, and you had the foresight to see that. That that's I've never heard of that. That's really cool. Yeah, it's wild stuff. I I realize I'm I acknowledge I'm very blessed, but it's it's one of those situations that you know real estate can be so fun, especially on the creative side. So yeah. anybody that's listening that hasn't heard of subject to or or wrap mortgages and just different creative type of financing, try to think outside the box. Surround yourself around high level individuals that are doing this type of funding and financing to be able to take down investments that will pay you a lifetime, and you'll be surprised what it can do for you. And so, uh, yeah, I just think it's pretty powerful. And that's why I'm such a big advocate of real estate. I I love what it's done for me, my family, and for my families to come. It's going to be incredible. Yeah. We have a term in my family. We're living the REI life. life. It gives us a lot of flexibility to spend time with our family, uh, to go do things and have experiences. I'm not about the things. I'm not chasing the bling and the shiny objects. We've got stuff, but you know, we're not. I'm, I'm, more, I'm more worried about what my kids can experience in life and how I can have time to go take them places and show them other cultures and lifestyles and you know other parts of the world, those types of things. And also, you know, you don't know to hang out at the lake or go out in the boat and go skiing and spend time with the kids. And that's what it's really all about. And that freedom. Will happen if you're if you're diligent. Maybe not happen overnight. It's taken me five years to get here, but how I hadn't started when I did. I'm 55. Imagine if you got started when you were 20, 25. I'm getting my kids into it. They, they see the value of owning real estate, and my younger one wants to take her over the business. And I hope to leave them a legacy. But you know, you talk about wraps. So I wanted to ask if we could talk about that real briefly because it's yeah. really a unique opportunity. I think that's coming to the market now. With the forbearances out there, we're going to see foreclosures. They've got to happen. The market is going to change a little bit. And no offense to you West Coasters, but your West Coast, in my opinion, in the larger market is going to take about a 22% of equity hit across the board from Seattle down to San Diego. Just a 20, I think a 20, 22% adjustment. Phoenix is another place. Denver is another. And then obviously the Chicago's and the New York. The Southeast, we're, we're blessed down here. You talk about being blessed. We've got a strong market down here. Other than Nashville, Nashville, I think, is going to take a hit. 
uh, probably about 15% the next year is because of jobs. They don't have a lot of jobs, but the Southeast does. And we're in a really good position to take that over. So with the foreclosures, which are going to happen across the board, you'll have that opportunity to do these acquisitions, whether it's buying it cash, doing subject to. But then when you do subject to, think about instead of wholesaling it, like I did on my first deal, I wish I would have known this, but wrap it. So what is another wrap? So if I own the house and I got to pay Wells Fargo $800 a month because I took over that mortgage, what if I put 20 grand into it and sold it to Joe? I said, hey, Joe, this house, I need $30,000 down. Your credit's not so good. You can't get a loan with the bank, but I'll make you a loan at 8%, 6%, whatever the number is, and you pay me. Essentially, you would be the bank. Got it. You got it. Now, on his bank, he's paying yep. me $1,500 a month. I take the 15, write a check for eight to Wells Fargo for the previous bank, and I keep the difference. Who owes that? And say, and, and, and say, you know, it, it costs you 3% for the mortgage, but it, you're charging 8%, the going rate or whatever it may be. You know, you can middleman off of that interest rate too. And there's so yeah. many creative ways that you can spin it to really be able to make such a premium over the long run. You got it. And, the, and whatever mortgage you take over, how deep are you into that amortization schedule? That's the yeah. end of your mortgage, right? I only have 20 years left. And now I just wrote a 30-year note with Joe. And when I get to that 20-year point over here, I'm going to have 10 years of pure income. He's got to pay that off. If he moves, he pays me and I, I just do it again. And you can you can ask for a premium down. You can ask for a premium over because you're getting creative over the ARV or whatever it may be. It, it's so many different, wild, like amazing things that you can do just by thinking outside the box and focusing more on terms versus price and working something amazing out. Yeah, I love it. Breaks, that's his problem, not mine. Yeah. I don't have a tenant. I don't have a toilet. Yeah. Amen. Amen, brother. I love it. <laughs> I love to edit. Don't need anything. Yeah. Carson, talk to me, man. What's the future look like for you, for the business? And I know you gave uh, uh, your opinion on kind of the market in the next year or so, but anything else that you want to shed light on with that? Well, I agree with you. We talked before we got started. I think interest rates are going to come down. Next year is not going to be good here in the stock market. So if you're in the stock market, I would consider about, you know, banking some of that into a money market somewhere. You know, Dow is what, 37,000 today, but it's going to take a hit next year based on all the, the prognosticators. But I got money in the market too. But going forward, our strategy is long-term vitals, cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. We're looking at larger acquisitions. We're looking at additional investor capital that we've got people now that are coming to us and we're saying, you know what, I'd love to take your 50,000, but I need 300. And it's weird to have that conversation because I can't take a lot of $50,000 loans to do what I need to do. I need large chunks, but we're giving out equity and we're giving out secure positions with that. So we've got a lot of people that we can work with. We're always looking for more. But to that point, we don't want to get into syndication. We like to talk about that later if we want, but we're looking at you know small groups of investors and two or three people owning large pieces of real estate, whether it be 50, 100 unit apartment complexes, boat and RV storage, which is real popular in the area that we are, uh, and even mobile home parks. But affordable housing is where we're staying. I don't want to get into a single family residence that is running for $4,000 because if the market corrects itself, which it might, in our area anyway, then we could get into that same situation we had in 08 where people were mailing their keys in. 
with larger multifamily portfolios, people still have to have a place to live. Whether you work from home, whether you work in a building, you still have to live at home. If you offer the affordable housing, meaning not the top of the line place, but that B level and C level, you're not going to be as affected much by the economy because the $1,500 rent that's today might shift to $1,300 because there's only so many of them. They don't build yeah. new apartments that are D level. They build A level and they're going to demand A prices. Yep. That makes sense. We're, we're focused on, on cash flow, but we're still fixing and flipping. With the market being the way it is, we're doing, you know, seven, eight hundred thousand dollar acquisitions, selling them for one, two, one point two million, one point three million. But you can only do a couple of those. Those are time consuming, a little more high end. They pay well, but they take longer, a little bit more risk. So you gotta make sure you buy them right. Uh, but when the market changes, we'll be right back into doing some volume again. We'll taking down some deals, wholesaling them out when we don't want them, if they don't fill our mold, or fixing them, flipping ourselves, and then still buying multifamily. But we expect probably the next five years, we'll probably be cracking the 1500 to 2000 North mark, if not sooner. Oh, I love it, man. That's awesome. How can people get a hold of you? You can reach me directly through my website. My website is www.capcityeg.com. That's short for Capital City Equity Group. You can look me up on YouTube. My email is carson at capcityeg.com. And you can uh, reach out to me on my uh, my Google number. I'm not going to give out my cell number right here, but on my Google number, which I never remember, sorry, 470-485-4173. That's 470-485-4173. That goes to my email as well. So yeah, reach out to me if you got any questions on subject two. If you're in the Southeast Atlanta market, need some help taking a deal down, I can structure it with you and help you get it across the table potentially. Uh, we can talk about what that looks like. But I really appreciate your time, Brandon. And thank you for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. Um, yeah. I'm going to continue to follow you. We met on Facebook, by the way. We're talking about Let's that. Go. Cool, man. Well, I appreciate your time as well. And guys, by all means, I, I highly encourage if you have any deals in the Atlanta market or somewhere in the South, reach out to Carson. Uh, any creative deals, he can help you structure it and get you across the finish line. With that all being said, if you want to get a hold of me, make sure you, if you haven't already, follow us on Instagram. It's Brandon Elliott Investments or even Credit Council Elite on Instagram. And then on Facebook.com forward slash Brandon Elliott Investor. If if you haven't checked out our website yet, creditcounselelite.com, what are you waiting for? You're going to want to do that right now, right here, for the simple fact that we're teaching business owners like you, real estate investors, how to be able to get up to 500000 every six months at 0% interest, just like this. Get a bunch of funding so that you can be able to grow, scale, diversify, and get started in real estate just like we did. So if that doesn't at least get a second opinion, you know, jump on. There's a quick 10-minute video on our website for creditcounselelead.com. Get a quick 10-minute explanation. It'll probably answer a lot of your questions, come up with new creative questions, and then just jump on a call with us to get a second opinion to really be able to deep dive into your situation and see how we can help you or give you some free guidance moving forward. With that being said, if you haven't already, hit that subscribe button to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast. You're going to want to do that right now as well so you get the newest notification every Monday. When the new episode drops, leave that five-star review and I love this, heart this, share this out, but appreciate all the new subscriptions, all the reviews. You guys are amazing. Love you guys all so much. We'll see you on the next one. Till next time, God bless. Carson, we'll see you next time, man. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. This is-
another episode of Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by Brandon Elliott. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Also, please don't forget to like, share, and leave a comment below. Thanks again for joining. Until next time, God bless.